This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Namasrestam Manumapisachiputram Atrasarupam Rupam Tasya Grajamurapurim Maturim Gostavatim Radha Kundam Girivara Aho Shiradika Madavasam Prapto Yasya Pratita Kripaya Shri Gurun Tamnatosmi Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. For the last 21 years or so, I have been into punk rock music, its morals, its community, and its lyrics. Many people involved in punk rock and its subculture engaged me as a teenager in a way nothing else could achieve. In many ways, the lyrics of punk rock bands were stronger social studies teachers than my actual teachers. Such movements have the power to mobilize, inspire, transcend injustice, and create a new way of life, which punk and hardcore did for me. My friend Professor Frances Stewart mentions in her new book, Punk Rock is My Religion, it is, quote, reasonable to assume that punk concerts are first forays into raising awareness of issues such as racism. For me, this is absolutely true and makes sense for me personally. Punk and people involved with punk made me aware of class struggle, violence, oppression, sexual orientation, the straight-edge values of no drinking, no smoking, no drugs, no casual sex, and also an introduction to vegetarian living and care for one's body, the environment, other sentient beings, and more. I'm not alone in this, either. My guest today, Raghunath, is well-known in these ways as a member of the hardcore bands Youth of Today, who are pioneers in straight edge, as well as Krishna Consciousness and the lessons of the Bhagavad Gita in his band Shelter. He's also a kirtan musician, and the music you heard at the top of this episode, entitled Prayer to My Teachers, is from his album Krishna Kirtan, available where you find digital music. This episode will close out with a full song performed on his record as well. Raghunath is also a renowned yoga teacher and is known for his program Flight School. And he's also a leader of spiritual pilgrimages to India, which we discuss in the episode. You can find him online at R-A-G-H-U-N-A-T-H dot yoga. That's Raghunath dot yoga. You should also find his YouTube page, youtube.com slash Raghunath Yoga. So this was a real pleasure for me. We got extremely geeky about life in an ashram in India, as well as the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. And it was a real pleasure to talk to him. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Raghunath. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I'm here today with Raghunath. Raghunath, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So if you can just introduce yourself briefly, say where people may know you from and what you do day to day, just to kind of give the audience a sense of who you are. Okay. Well, um, I sort of became known um, in my younger days. I'm 52 right now. So as a teenager, I was in a band that sort of spearheaded the straight edge um, movement called Youth of Today. Um, I was the singer and the songwriter. Um, that band got like sort of international popularity, but it was 
very peculiar. It was back before internet, before cell phones, before my rooster's going off in the backyard. Dude, backyard. I, I, I love it. I'm, leave, I'm leaving the rooster in. <laughs> so anyway, people know me from the, you know, we popularized this underground movement. And things, I mean, underground movements were pretty fascinating back then because people just wrote letters and things. There was like a word of mouth that was actually real, just got passed around um, uh, before, you know, there were message boards. So anyway, um, we put out records, we toured, um, and then we broke up. And then I moved to a, a Krishna ashram um, at the end of Youth of Today. Not at the end of Youth of Today, I just quit Youth of Today. I went to India. And um, basically, I lived in Ashram for six years, maybe even seven years. Um, and um, I sort of gave up my musical life um, at the height of its success. Um, and then the more I studied the Gita, which is sort of like the essential teachings of ancient India, um, the more I realized, like the Gita doesn't teach to give up what you what you're good at doing. It teaches you how to refine what you do, and or um, sort of like transform what you do. Um, uh, the idea is that you know some people have this concept like things of this world are bad for you because they can complicate your life. Um, you know, sometimes people there's even yogic systems that like specialize in not speaking because speaking complicates your life. When you speak, you can offend people, you can criticize people, you can uh, you can uh, you can uh, create all types of like uh, disharmony with speech. So there's certain yogis. It's even popular in some Buddhist traditions to stop speaking. Um, another one is like personal relationships are no good. So you want to have you want to forget about your personal life or the concept of a personal deity, and you sort of just want to merge with light. And these people become like reclusives and um, monks, and uh, they eat very frugally, um, and they try to uh, disconnect them themselves with their sensual self. Actually, these type of monastics exist in all spiritual traditions. Um, but the Gita, which sort of likes rallies behind, um, using your talents in a spiritual way was really attractive to me. And it's, it sort of like did a sort of a body slam on what I thought spirituality was, was, which was abandon the, abandon the world. And the more I studied it, the more I realized you're not supposed to give it up. You're supposed to take what you do and use it in a spiritual way. In the same way, it's not like speech is bad for you, but speech that's negative or critical or, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, degrading, that type of speech can be bad for you. But there's also positive speech. It's it's just like with food. Food's not bad for you. It's what kind of food you eat can be bad for you. Well, other food can heal you, you know, in the same way a knife is not good or bad. It's how a knife is utilized. You know, you could use it to slit someone's throat. You could use it to save somebody's life in a delicate operation. So um, talent is the same way. There's a lot of times um, we have a talent, and that talent causes us a lot of pain. Um, um, sometimes I have had friends who were competitive athletes, and the thing they loved to do, they ended up hating it because they got wrapped up in competition and ego so what we do, what I did with music was I, I sort of transformed what I did previously and did it in a 
in a more spiritual way. And that's where my second band, Shelter, sort of, that's the genesis of the my second band, Shelter, basically. And so some people know me from Youth of Today. Some people know me from Shelter. And then um, years later in my uh, late 30s, you know, I had always practiced yoga since my 20s, actually since my teens. And then um, I started just sort of like shelved my music and just started teaching yoga. And I became sort of an international yoga teacher. And I sort of did it under wraps. Like my no one really knew who I was in the music scene in the yoga world. It was sort of like under wraps. I sort of like kept it as my sort of secret life, <laughs> at least for the first part of it, especially because – I, the, the universe somehow threw me out in the middle of Beverly Hills. Somehow I was teaching there. I never planned it that way, but somehow I got offered all these um, teaching gigs in Beverly Hills. So I became a, sort of a popular teacher in Beverly Hills. So, and um, yeah, anyway, I'm sorry for this intro is getting too long, but so so people know me from the yoga scene as well. Nice. So would you call yourself a Hindu, or would you classify yourself spiritually as something else? You know, Hindu is a really vague word, and it's it's not an Indian word. It's not a Sanskrit word. It was sort of a made-up word by the Greeks, and it means basically anybody east of the Sindhu River. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of like a – it's it's ambiguous what that even means. It's like calling every Christian denomination in America, you know, Yankeeism or something. Sure. You can't even you – can't, you can't even – use an analogy because within the word Hinduism, there's people that um, worship uh, are mystics. There's people that are theistic. There's people that are pantheistic. There's people that are like, um, they would appear in one sense on the external level to be just like any other quote Hindu, but they could be sort of our equivalent of like uh, satanic, you know? So it, 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 the word doesn't even mean anything. Yet somehow, because we live in such a a world dominant culture, that Indians themselves sort of take on those words. You know what I mean? When a culture right. is so powerful, just like we, just like the whole world's taken on the Christian calendar. It's not like China didn't have calendars, or Japan didn't have, or Korea <laughs> didn't have calendars, or the, you know, uh, South America didn't have calendars. But the Christian calendar, the Roman influence, and the world powers that we all take on the Christian calendar. No one's walking around saying that you know, you know what dynasty the the emperors of China were born in and naming it after that. Right. So in the same sense, we did that with Hinduism. Like you can go to whatever NYU and take a course on Hinduism, but it's not even a real word. So it's basically trying to figure out what's all over there. And for the most part, it's only even come into light within the last forty years. Go. But think about when you take a course, you're only studying from whatever like scholars have actually studied. So um, the the guru of the Hare Krishna movement, who who first brought Krishna f- philosophy to the West, was probably the first person to really explain what pretty much 67 percent of all what we would call Hindus are, which are monotheistic <laughs> they believe in one supreme deity mm-hmm. um and that's called vaishnavism or the worship of vishnu before he came everybody thought um you know all the all the authorities 
were based on sort of the teachings of Ramakrishna, who uh, who had who came to America in this uh, world conference of religion in the turn of the century, and basically he was a worshiper of uh, Kali. So basically, a lot of the scholars' only reference point to Indian is Indian philosophy was these teachings of uh, Ramakrishna mission. Um, and which was a very thin idea of what India was made up of. So is that connected to the International Society for Krishna Consciousness? That was Swami Prabhupada's institution that he created. Um, uh, so if, you know, yes, that, that's what, that was the name of his institution that he started. So w- are, would you consider yourself a Hare Krishna devotee? You know, I would say, I think nowadays, I just look at myself as a devotee. I, I just call myself a spirit soul. And I'm a devotee. Krishna is my deity that I worship. I've lived in a temple. I was trained in those in this temples as a young man. Um, but I'm not really connected to any particular center. Right. I, you know, I have my own center so that I teach, I teach from. Absolutely. So what I'm curious about that is, uh, what was it about Krishna when you were a young man that attracted you to the manifestation of God in that manner? Like, what was it about Krishna that lured you towards that understanding of monotheism? You know, I look at it sort of like a... um, I always like the concept of truth, and I think that truth is... um, it's sort of like the food for the soul. And I felt like everybody, it re, truth resonates with everybody, and truth is what we need in times of our great struggle. Um, I didn't believe that any one church had a monopoly on truth. Um, I, I thought truth was for all people of all religions. At the same time, I sort of grew up Catholic, reading the Bible. I think, you know, I grew up believing in a, su- a supreme truth, and I, and I liked the teachings of Jesus. But the people I met that were sort of representing sort of turned me away from it, sadly, um, because I felt like it became more exclusive. I'll give you some examples. Here's some sure. simple questions that I would pose to um, you know, Christian preachers, and I, I never got a very satisfying answer, which was, what, where, where, what's the destination of a good Buddhist? Mm-hmm. I would, and the people at least I spoke to, and maybe not every Christian would say this, but they'd say, "Well, we'll go to hell." Even if they were practicing very similar things that Christ taught, which was, you know, compassion and love your enemy and sense control, they would still go to hell. And I found that hard to believe, or I found that hard. I found that hard to opt into. And then I said, "Well, what about a good uh, follower of Muhammad or a good Jew? After all, Christ was a Jew. What is it? Where's a good Jew go to?" Hmm. And the answer was, unless they surrender to Jesus, they'd go to hell. So I was thinking, well, where's Muhammad go? Where does Abraham go? Do they go to hell? They never met Jesus. They never surrendered to Jesus. And so it brought up a bunch of – and then and then the, the other concept of like, and where do they go? And they're go, they go there – they go to hell eternally? Why does a person have to go to hell eternally? I mean, I understand if there's a crime, then you punish a person for the crime. But, I mean, if a person stole a cucumber, would you flog them eternally? Mm-hmm. So my my question was sort of like never fully answered. Like, if it, okay, I get it. 
what if I was born in Nome, Alaska, in the Christian calendar 100? How the hell would I ever meet a Christian? Right. And why should I have to go to hell eternally, forever? And how does that represent a divine energy of love? Or is God just the eternal hate? It started like it started making me like redefine what is God anyway. If if, if the concept of God is love, then or or am I worshiping some? Because the the type of God that these type of people would preach would be a real sadistic, really vicious type of God. I mean, what type of government would we be in if you stole one little thing? And you'd be punished, you'd, you'd get the death sentence for that. So to me, I liked the teachings of Christ when I read them, mm-hmm. but I didn't like how it was presented, or I I just didn't I didn't believe that this was representing Christ. So anyway, what happened with Krishna consciousness? I think was um, I liked that concept of a very broad understanding of God that there's one God and God will have different names in different cultures, and there's different messengers like Christ who teach you to surrender to God and teaches you methods to approach God and that God isn't, and that um, there is punishment in the world and there also is praise in the world. There's, there's, um, and we experience that in our lifetime. There's great joy. We experience like the birth of a child. We experience great happiness with our family or with our career, but we also experience extreme loss and extreme heartbreak um, it's almost like heaven and hell are p- present on this planet sometimes. Sometimes you can experience it in uh, one day. So, so finding so finding Krishna was sort of like that. That this life is eternal, and we're here to learn lessons. And you learn them on planet Earth. You learn them on higher planets or lower planets. But you're here to basically learn lessons. And if you don't learn the lesson, you come back and you you get to relearn them and you pick up a pick up pick up where you left off and this and this lifetime isn't here just to have a good time this lifetime is here to grow and the interesting thing is if i look at my life as how can i have a good time i'll never be happy but if i I look at this lifetime all right if i look at if i look at this life as how can i grow you'll always happy you having a good day how can i grow from this you having a tough day with the kids how can I grow from this? Having a good time and you're, you're you know, uh, you're in love. How can I grow from this? You're, 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 someone breaks your heart. How can I grow from this? If you're looking at life as how can I grow, like almost like you're in prison. How can I rectify myself so I can go out and be a decent citizen again? Then the, 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 the institution of prison becomes a useful tool. But if I'm learning how to be a better criminal in prison – it's not useful. So if if the material world can be seen like this, like we're here to learn lessons. If you don't learn your lessons, it's okay. You're just going to have to come back again. And I started realizing that in my life anyway. Like if I don't learn a lesson about trust, if I don't learn the lesson about um, humility, if I don't learn the lesson about compassion, I get presented with that lesson again and again and again. And we see people make the same mistakes again and again and again. And then sometimes I feel like, you know, I learned forgiveness. Then I find like I get asked to up that a little bit more you know so i feel like um this my material existence is actually a chance for me to experience how can i have spiritual growth here and so that's how we um anyway this sort of teachings of krishna i really can relate to like my god is a a personal being a divine personal being that you, you pray to and relate to um and that um and um, 
you try to figure out how your life can be focused on service. So when you were so when you were 22, and you realized these lessons, you threw yourself fully into being from being a punk rock and hardcore frontman to living in a Krishna ashram, uh, yeah, practicing every it. day. So. I want to talk to you about that transition of moving into an ashram. So I want you to like, can can you take me back in some of those memories? Like, what do you remember about your first couple of days waking up in the ashram? So what do you remember about waking up your first couple of days in the ashram? I loved it. I loved it. I loved going to bed early. I loved waking up early. I still do it. Um, and it was great. I mean, as much as like, it sounds exciting being in a band and stuff like that. And the band was getting bigger. I found like it started, it started getting such a deep grip on me. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people experience this in the workplace, not just in music, but the more successful you get at anything, the more chance your, your biggest enemy comes into the, into your picture, which is your ego, your ego, your competition, your envy, your pride, um, your desire, your, your desire to, you know, uh, even, uh, you know, and even though Youth of Today, the band I was in, was not a, uh, we were a straight edge band. We, didn't, we weren't like Van Halen on tour. Yeah. But still, that ego's there. The ego's there even in people doing good things in the world. And I tell you, I was, I was actually exhausted and suffering because of it. And for me, it was like, thank God this is over. Now, that hurts a lot of fans. Um breaks some fans hearts but i think anybody in the workplace can understand how success can make you sad Mm -hmm. very often it's not like just failure makes you sad sometimes success can root i mean come on how many times have very successful people commit suicide very Mm -hmm. successful people have drug drug addictions or sex addictions or spending addictions you know it's because they can't cope with their reality so for me it was um of relief to give up everything, including my clothing that I wore on my back and any concept of fashion or what was cool and, you know, and just walk into like an ashram where no one even couldn't care less and no one knew my background and no one knew who I was. It was a, it was a great to live a totally anonymous life and walk around barefoot in India and not have anybody even, you know, get me and trying to, and try and really, and, 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 and sort of like, you know, there don't get me wrong. There was like total culture shock too. Throwing yourself in in India pre-internet, pre pre cell phone. India was like going to India back then was like going to another planet. Um, but it was super cool. It was super cool, and it's it was it, it was for me. It was it had so much deep joy and made deep impressions on me that I'll never forget the rest of my life. What were your living quarters like? It was like a prison, <laughs> in a sense, like it was like a cement room. It's in India, it's a cement room, you know, no air conditioning, um, no uh, central heating. You know, we took cold showers every morning, um, and uh, you know, we had three meals a day, um, but it was delicious. Simple but delicious. Did you do? And, uh, um, did, did you have like a daily meditation practice while you were there too? Oh yeah, we're up at uh, there's a morning pro- morning program at four thirty in the morning. Actually, it started at four ten in the morning, and then um, and the, but you know in the in the culture of bhakti, it's all 
you know, musical. It's tied in with music. So they're singing and chanting and dancing and sitting and singing and, and, and meditating on malas, um, on beads, sacred, you know, Indian rosary. <clears throat> and, um, and sometimes we do things called parikramas, which are like sacred walks where you go on like just meditative walks around holy places, sometimes for two hours or six hours, um, barefoot, you know, despite whatever the weather is. So sometimes it's like freezing out and you're walking barefoot. And, <laughs> um, sometimes it's blistering hot out and you're walking barefoot. So, um, but anyway, rise early, go to bed early, cold showers every morning. You know, you're celibate. And in your 20s, that was like a whole trip. Um, but I did it for about seven years. What did you uh, What did you wear every day as a monk? We wore robes, um, just Indian dhotis, which are which are the traditional dress of India. I mean, people still wear them in holy cities. It's how many meters? Like two, three meters cloth, um, and uh, maybe a meter wide. And then they, you wrap them around, and I guess different cult, different parts of India they tie them different ways, but they're very beautiful, simple cloths. It was basically what everybody wore all over around the world before Levi's came into the picture. <laughs> um, you know, people wore cult robes and cultures. You know, Buddha wore robe, and Muhammad wore robes, and Jesus wore robes, and the Greeks wore robes, and the Romans wore robes. That's what just what people wore. And you, I mean, if you're very wealthy or if you're a king, you wear every beautiful one made with, you know, fine silk and sometimes um, jewels or gold thread embroidered in. But we wore simple khadi, which was homespun, homespun uh, cotton cloth. How many, uh, uh, and, how many monks were in the ashram that you lived in? Um, well, you know, I did, lived at different ashrams, but in India there was millions in uh, probably a couple hundred um but in america i lived in and out of different temples nice um so looking back on that first entry into the monkhood in the 80s what are you still learning from that initial entry into the ashram like how does that experience with um young ray in the ashram speak to raganath of today You know, you have a, a foundational uh, principles. I, I, I'll say in two ways. There's two different answers here. One is they're like foundational principles of simplicity, self-control, regulation that just sort of stay with you as sort of a true north to drag you back to, you know. Um, I mean, you know, now I have five kids. I have an 11-acre farm yeah. retreat center. It, it's like my life is completely complicated. It's a spiritual life, I feel like, and we have a mission, a spiritual mission, and my family's involved in it, but it's definitely not as, uh, it's definitely much more complicated than it was when I had all my possessions in a milk crate. Um, you know, now I've got garages of, you know, bicycles with training <laughs> wheels and, you know. Yeah. Um, was it... snowboard rock. But anyway, but, but in one sense... Um, the the married life and family life, it's a spiritual life, but it's almost like a parallel path because hmm. you have to be like you have to, in sort of imbibe those spiritual disciplines that you had as a monk, but you have to be able to administer them to other people in your family that might not be as focused as you are, 
And yet at the same time, you want to encourage them and not just like ostracize them. So you sort of like try to figure out, it's like salt, you know, you got to put on some salt in the food, but if you put on too much salt, you ruin the food. But Mm -hmm. if you put on no salt, then you don't, it doesn't taste good. Or like another example is sort of like with medicine, you know, with herbal medicine, you want to give some herbs or the guy doesn't get better. If you give no, if you give no, if you give too many herbs, sometimes you can kill the patient. So you want to encourage your kids, encourage your spouse, and you don't want to be, and you have to be, you know, you have to be, when you're dealing with other adults, you know, they have a lot to offer as well. So you have to be humble and hear from other people. And you have to be able to give and you got to be on your top game. And also you have to set an example for your kids and you have to imbibe your life with spirituality. And sort of like you have to walk a middle path as a householder. And it's a, it's, it's a, um, a tightrope because a middle path in the material the, – because the material world's crazy. It's uh, Culture is dragging you and trying to knock you off a tightrope. It almost like tempts you to the edge of destruction. You have media and culture like calling you to the edge of cliffs basically. Zero down, interest only, don't pay anything <laughs> for 18 months. It's like it's tempting you to the edge. And then of course it chastises you severely if you fall off that edge. But culture itself, you're not going to get a crutch from culture. Um, so you have to really be internally disciplined. And that itself is tough for adults. What to speak of even being a teenager or something, it's tough for adults to be disciplined. So that's a whole practice. And it involves usually being very connected. And it helps to have that background that I had. But also it tends to be like you have to re- birth your commitments on a regular basis and you have to have a community of people that support that as well did you you ever yeah did you ever feel conflicted or divided in the creation of consciousness movement due to not being india or from the indian subcontinent well like was that ever a cultural struggle no because ultimately the teachings of the gita is we're not indian and we're not american we're spirit gotcha can that we... is just like a, a temporary thing. You're Indian for this lifetime, maybe not in your next lifetime. You know. Yeah. I felt like being born in America also gave me a good. I think there's a beauty about people in the Western world because we've done so many ridiculous, insane things with our life. It's almost like sometimes if you've ever if you've ever surfed, sometimes you get hit by a wave that's so big that you get tumbled in the wave. And you're still in deep water, and you can't figure out which way is up. Oh, I love that. You know feeling. what I'm talking about? Oh, I've done it's it. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like some, some. If you're lucky, you get hit the bottom. You're like, oh, that's the ground. I can spring off the ground. I feel like Americans, we've hit such a rock bottom that at least we can only go up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And a lot. I find I find a lot of, of Americans. You can really speak to them very clearly. We've all got our hearts broken. We've all done crazy things sexually. We've taken drugs. We've like you know lost everything gambling. It's like Americans have like you know have addictions to like pain really painkillers, pain you know prescription meds, chronic illness. It's like we've been everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so it's, in one sense, uh, Americans, they're very easy to sort of look to light because what's the option? Death? Yeah. And then you have a lot of Indians, I find, they're like, they grow up often. 
especially this younger culture when I was younger, um, they grew up very refined, very religious, very self-controlled, you know, um, very like obedient. Um, yet, you know, they, I know at 35, they're asking their parents for their blessings to get a new job or to, for their parents to arrange their marriage for them or things like that, which an American, like arrange a marriage. Are you kidding? <laughs> you know, like my mom arranged my marriage for me. Are you nuts? <laughs> you know, to, to them, it's like, of course we wouldn't do anything without our parents' blessings. Most Americans by the time they're 13 are giving their parents the finger, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just not what India, the karma of Indians are. There's like an incredibly respectful culture. And so therefore, it's sort of like a lot of times Indians, they grow up with all this sort of piety and discipline, but they're sort of looking towards the West because culture sells it to them. Like, you losers, you know, start your medical practice in New York. You can make, you can get out of the ghetto and make it rich. You know, and unfortunately they do. And unfortunately they also buy into American culture and they lose a piece of themselves. I've seen Mm -hmm. it happen again and again. So a lot of times Indians are very close to God, but they're facing the wrong direction. That's what I find. Oh, interesting. I think, I think, I I think a lot of them are actually very, some very special people I've met. And I love going to India and I love Indians, but I find for like the masses, they're looking to the West as their way out. Whereas I feel like a lot of Americans are really easy to to share this type of stuff with, because we are we're on the rock bottom and we're looking for light. So as far as do I feel conflict between American and Indian? No, I feel like we're all sort of spirit souls. I feel like there's a beautiful uh, marriage between. Uh, West, Mar- I think Americans are like a, a brilliant race. We're a race of like ingenious people who've thought of incredible things. Like where else in the world do you go where people are coming up with stuff like Google and Facebook and you know, we're just like making interesting things up all the time. It's it's quite impressive what Americans do. And then I think that Indians do fascinating things as well. And Americans take things super seriously. You know, a lot of like Indian gurus came here in the sixties, they didn't even teach vegetarianism because they thought Americans can't be vegetarians. They're just like a bunch of like animals. I'll just teach them some things about being nice and kind. But Americans take things very seriously when they get into it. And so it's um it's sort of impressive. And so like America I think it's a Western culture has taken these ancient arts and really sort of like resurrected these arts like Ayurvedic medicine, Indian dance, Vedic astrology. They've taken these ancient arts and taken them very seriously. So it's, it's it's super impressive. So there's a thread running through this conversation, and it keeps running through the Gita. And you always have you just talked about how we resurrect things that are ancient in the modern day in in the United States, and that is so fascinating. So can we turn to the Gita for a little while? Sure. Awesome. So why is the story of this young man Arjuna who is facing a dilemma over whether or not to fight his cousins in a war? Why is this dejection relevant to Westerners in 2018 to you? We are all put in like ridiculously tough situations in life. And it most of the time it won't be as difficult as as Arjuna from the Bhagavad Gita. He had to fight in a war against his cousins, his um, guru, 
his teachers, his elders. And um, his dilemma is, what do I do? Like, if I don't fight, they're all going to kill me. They're ready to kill me. But if I do fight, then the very people I want to enjoy my life with are going to be dead. And and instead of and, and he's on the battlefield with Krishna, who spoke, who is according to the teachings, Vishnu or God, God personified. And God, instead of saying be passive, he's saying actually no, you should fight because that's your duty. So what we get from that is we all have a spiritual duty in our life. And we have an opportunity at every moment, actually, as a choice comes, is to choose light over darkness. This is a very relevant point. And the choices may not be as extreme in extreme situations. Maybe I didn't have to kill my guru or kill my parents or kill my ancestors or my elders on the other side. But I'm going up against something in my life today that I'm struggling with. Can I choose something towards light, towards spirit? towards God, towards truth for my evolution? Or am I going to make a choice for my selfishness, um, my ego, um, towards my my short-sighted, um, short gain for long-term disaster? That's the, that's the, that's the, um, the ultimate messages. Am I going to turn towards God or turn towards dark? And there's a deep trust in that as I turn towards light, even if it doesn't even make any material sense, it always works out good. As I turn towards light, like for example, you know, we have that so many times. You know, the job offer offered me A, B, C, and D, and I got a raise every incrementally every six months, and I got in a position, and I got a great office that I always wanted. But something's telling me deep within my heart, I'm going to be miserable. You know. Should I take that or should I get this job where I'm going to get paid half the salary, no recognition, share an office with two other guys? But the the work I'm doing in that, I feel like will fulfill me in such a deep way. Mm-hmm. So these are the choices we're going to get offered on a bit. And, and these choices make no material sense. And sort of as spirit souls, we're not asking to make these choices out of our material concept, our material math. We have to do sort of spiritual math. So I want to piggyback off that a little bit. In, sure. In chapter one, Arjuna caught in the middle of the war, facing down the cousins. And in chapter one, verse 22, he says, Far enough for me to see these men who lust for war, ready to fight with me in the strain of battle. I see men gathered here, eager to fight, bent on serving the folly of Dhritarashtra's son. Who do you see as the people today that are lusting, and uh, what are the follies that we are serving in 2018? Dhritarashtra's son, Duryodhan, um, he's representing lust, greed, anger, envy, the epitome of all those things. He's like, it's the archetype of lust, greed, anger, and envy. Um, so what we're dealing with that in the face, we're, what we're dealing with, um, you know, truthfully, you could point it out in the whole world, and we're dealing with the one percent. You know, that's uh, you know. But truthfully, I don't even like to even take it there. I mean, even though we can take this to politics, we could take this to um, leaders and pre- But I find that the more I like look outside and with the demons of this world, um, 
I find that not that I might even be off base, but I cheat myself out of looking out of my shortcomings to the degree that I focus on Trump's shortcomings mm-hmm. or um, North Korea's shortcomings or the Russians' shortcomings. I cheat myself out of dealing with my shortcomings because I can do something about my shortcomings. I can't do something about Trump's. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And what we do in a political climate is we start throwing mud on everybody. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be like um, have an an opinion on it. But it brings us back to this idea of there is a circle of influence that I can change. And there are certain things I can't change about this world. I can eat organic, right? I can uh, have an organic garden. But if they're going to like – decide to frack through my yard and there's nothing I can do, what can I do about that? Mm -hmm. So I can take care of myself. I can be honest. I can be truthful. I can control my senses. I can't control Donald Trump's senses (laughs) or his mind, you know, but I know I need work and I know that when I actually work on myself, it affects me in a deep way. It not only affects me, it affects my kids. Yeah. For example, if I want my kids to eat eat healthy, I should eat healthy. I can't just tell them to eat healthy. If I want my kids to have a certain if I if I want my kids not to be filled with rage, I can't be filled with rage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So and not only that, I'm a leader. I'm a yoga teacher. I have lots of fans or followers or whatever. I'm a speaker. I'm a teach. I so I'm not just affecting even my kids. I'm affecting everybody I meet, all my students, wherever I travel to. So there's so much work to do in my own backyard that I'm going to keep it there. And I know I'm changing the world because I'm changing my consciousness. Yeah. I find that when people really go out to find the other demons of this world – I mean, come on. How many times have you met an animal rights activist that hates your guts because you don't fit into their concept of what animal rights is? Yeah. So my theory, and, and it's not just animal rights. People do it with uh, veganism. They do it with religion. They do it with um, health food, organic food. They do it with um, any type of self betterment, raw foods, or or you know, juicing, or you know, whatever it is. Any type of self betterment definitely do with politics. When you're doing self betterment and it's leading you to hate another group that's not like you. I say you're doing something absolutely wrong. Even if you have great intentions for it, if it's if the final fruit of all your work is that you hate somebody else, you're doing it wrong. So many things that you just said remind me of a line in chapters 3 and 18 where it says that your own duty done imperfectly is better than another man's done well. And that really connects to everything that you just said in so many ways mm-hmm. about how you can change yourself, but you can't control somebody else. And there, we all have work that needs to be done on ourselves. Can I ask you a question about um, chapter 2, verse 20? Sure. It, it says, it is not born, it does not die. Having been, it will never not be. Unborn, enduring, constant, and primordial. It is not killed when the body is killed. And this is referring to the Atman, and I think this is a concept that might be quite uh, 
strange for people who haven't read the Gita or studied Eastern or I mean uh, Indian philosophy. But uh, I know that you like this quote because I've seen it on the back of a shelter T-shirt. <laughs> Why do you like that? What, what do you like about this quote so much? Um, I just like the idea of it talks about the soul is eternal. Soul is eternal. Sometimes you get very out of our, our body, our gender, our nation. Um, and we forget that actually we're not the body at all. We're an eternal being. Um, begins. Uh, so I like the concept like we are here and the body's just taking forms and due to my ego or my attachment I start to think that this form is me so therefore the consumism don't relate to nationalism don't relate to um, I, 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 why because I'm a, I'm a woman <laughs> as much as because a woman this is a temporary designation. An American is a temporary designation. Even a human is a temporary. Not only that, all these designations are limiting. For example, you're not a woman. You're not a man. You're not an animal. You're a spirit soul. When I and you start to become what you call yourself. You know, you start to act like what you call yourself. Like I've hung out with guys on a football team when I was in high school who'd just be like, "Oh man, we're just bunch of animals." Guess what happens if you call yourself a bunch of animals? You start animal, you know. Or sometimes people say, "Hey, man, I'm just an Italian, I'm an Italian male. What am I supposed to do?" Then you act according to what your mind would call an Italian male would do. But when you start saying, "I'm a spirit soul," then you start start acting like what the spirit soul would act. So be careful what you label yourself, what you call yourself, because you start to become that. And what are and then what is the actual mirror of reality? I'm unborn, I'm eternal, I'm everlasting, I'm unborn. I'm not of this world. I'm just a visitor of this world and this I don't possess anything. I don't possess these kids. I don't possess this home. I don't possess this land. It's, you know, this we have the home our whole culture is built on that. This land is your land, this land is my land. No it's not. <laughs> this land is just like on loan to you for a few days. So your kids fight over it, and then it ends up in probate court and gets sold <laughs> off, you know? Yeah. And then whose land is it anyway? You stole it from somebody. It's like we play this game of honor amongst thieves. We're just a bunch of thieves. We came to this country. We stole the country. And then we, we it's this honor amongst thieves. Like, I'll say that this is a title for this property, and then I'll sell it to you, and you'll pay me for the property. Well, where did you get it from? Well, I bought it from him. Where did he get it from? He, well, he bought it from him. And where did he get it from? Uh, was the Duchess of York <laughs> gave it to William Penn. And where did they – he just gave – where did William Penn get it from? He just staked it out and took it from people that were living there. <laughs> it's like honor amongst thieves. That's our concept of ownership in this world. We just take things. We take things from the earth, the resources from the earth, and we claim them to be ours. And it's this constant, like, sort of like, this is, see what it is? It's these age-old enemies that don't haven't grown up overnight. They've been here forever. They've been here before there was pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. These things have been there forever. They're called lust, greed, anger, envy. <laughs> they plague the soul. And it doesn't matter what religion you are or whether you're not religious, they plague the soul and they make the soul sad. And the soul is by nature very joyous. So as long as we're dealing with the world 
and trying to control and manipulate this world and, and trying to see that the world think the world is ours when we'll suffer from these things as long as we start to identify with ourselves, I'm a spiritual being. I'm just a visitor here. I don't own anything. Even this land that I have right now, I'm using it for a spiritual center. It's not mine. It could be taken away from me at any moment. These kids aren't mine. They look like me. They talk like me. You know, they have my same little habits. They're not mine. I don't possess them. I don't possess my wife. I don't possess my money. My money's on loan to me. It can get taken away in a moment. I can get crap loads dumped on my lap in a moment. It's not mine. So once I start seeing the world like that, like a spirit soul, it changes the whole way I look at reality. So, in like in the la- the last question I want to ask you about the Bhagavad Gita is chapter eleven. Krishna, whenever he has exploded in a an image across the depths of the universe and mm. revealed himself to Arjuna, Krishna says. By devotion alone can I, as I really am, be known and seen and entered into Arjuna. What is this devotion Mm. that Krishna is speaking of, and how do human beings do it? Well, I think everyone's experienced this in a micro level. For example, if you want to know a friend... Devotion just means love. The word in Sanskrit is bhakti, or you know, um, or they'll also use the word surrender. Or, but devotion is is type of love, and love comes through service. And so, for example, if I want to know you, you'll only share a certain amount of your life with me. But if you see, like, wow, Raghunath's really sincere. Raghunath really is not trying to find some dirt on me. Raghunath really cares about me. Raghunath has my best interest in mind. After a while, you start to like trust Raghunath. Then after a while, you start to realize, Raghunath's actually a pretty nice guy. I think I'm going to share this. I'm going through a hard time right now. I might not share this at the workplace. I might not share this with my boss. I might not share this with some of the people I, um, you know, I'm on a sports team with. But I'm going to share this with Raghunath because I trust Raghunath. When you have people like that in your life you can trust or people that lo- that love you, then you start to reveal everything to them, isn't it? Like if sometimes you know we're we're in love with a, a partner or a spouse, we share everything with them to the degree that I can share everything with them. That's how love. That's how you evoke love. And so the same in the micro of of this world, you have in the macro of our relationship with the divine. As we connect with the divine through service and love, then the divine starts to reveal themselves himself to us. And so that's how we're connected to Krishna. That's what bhakti is or bhakti yoga is. It's the connection through the divine with love. And love can be in the form of any type of service. And But there's millions of prescribed ways to do it in India and um, or in traditionally. And that's sort of like what we study. What's your, uh, what's your favorite part of your job teaching people about yoga, India, bhakti, kirtan, and Krishna? Good question. Well, you know, my because I feel that um, this information makes people happy because it connects you with your soul, and the soul is by definition joyous. It's said that we don't have to get joy; we're already joyous. But we have to get out of our way. Is my concept of a material myself as a material being? So when I get that concept away, I become much more joyous. And when I see the joy in the people's lives from adopting a practice like that. It makes me joyous. That's sort of my greatest pleasure. 
Well, Raghunath, this has been a spectacular hour. Can you tell people uh, where to find you if they want to know more about your teaching, your pilgrimages, and anything else? I do these phenomenal pilgrimages every year, and I do teacher trainings. You know, we have a center here. If you go to supersoulfarm.com, that is where I presently teach my trainings out of, and we have different weekends that I do throughout the year as well as other very uh, in, people, teachers that I find inspiring. I have them come teach here too, and it's in upstate New York between New York City and Boston, um, south of Albany and the, right by the Berkshires. I also travel to teach. My schedule is on my website, Raghunath.yoga, which is R-A-G-H-U-N-A-T-H dot yoga. And then also um, Instagram is a very popular way that people connect with me all the time, which is Raghunath, R-A-G-H-U-N-A-T-H, yogi, Raghunath yogi. Um, And that's basically the best social media ways to, to find me or where I'm at. Then every every autumn I take a group to India on pilgrimage. This year we're going way high up in the Himalayas, a very sacred place called Badrinath, and it's a phenomenal. Pil- if you ever wanted to go to like a spiritual trip through India, it's like really, it's like such a game changing trip. And then I do a, a, approximately a month. I do a teacher training for those who are already yoga teachers. I do a training in India as well, where we study all the really wonderful cultural facets of yoga culture including music cooking ayurveda which is the healing healing arts of india um as well as yoga pranayama asana stuff like that Um, that's all on my website and i loved in your your latest pilgrimage announcement saying do not come on this pilgrimage if you haven't been with me before because it's really hard (laughs) Oh yeah, this pil- this pilgrimage we're going way up in the Himalayas, and I had a whole vetting process. Um, um, just like you can't go with me unless you've been with me. You know, you, I, I just don't. You know, you want a, an elite team of yes people that are just yeah. like when you're going that high into the Himalayas, and you're dealing with you know, you know, it's crazy India still. You got windy roads, you got no guardrails, you got so. Um, for some reason it sparked a bunch of people's interest like i'm doing this and i like practically sold out overnight amazing Um, i know so these are really good and um and and it's exciting and for me i love india so much it's such a a great place to visit and take my kids every year and my family and it's a big part of our life as well do you have an example of like a really short mantra that you could share in our closing today well we chant Hare Krishna mantra, which is a quite beautiful mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama. Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And the beautiful thing about this mantra, it's names of male and feminine, masculine and feminine names of divine. But what it really does is it, it's a, sort of a prayer to engage me in service. Like, what am I here to do? I don't want to... Not that I just want to serve myself or, or just serve my family or just serve my nation or just serve my boss, but what am I meant here to offer? What is my spiritual offering? We all have some material offering. We, we've been doing that our whole life. What is my spiritual offering here? So when we chant the Hare Krishna mantra, even though it's nice and you might sing it, it's kind of like a deep meaning, which is sort of like, don't necessarily give me what I want. And I get this from all the time from yoga students like, uh, Give me a mantra for money. Give me a mantra for uh, relationships. But instead of asking divinity for something, 
How about asking me, what do I need? What can I give? And that's a very, very beautiful, powerful mantra. Um, try it. <laughs> Just sit there and chant it. Say it and in a very sincere mood, with the mind clear. Ragana, thank yeah. you, uh, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a real pleasure. Keep up the good work. It sounds great.
Music in this episode of Classical Ideas was performed by Raghunath and Kelly Laleda Reddy from Raghunath's 2015 album, Krishna Kirtan, Music as Meditation. Additional music was composed and performed by Derek Strybeck. You can subscribe to Classical Ideas in Stitcher, iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks for listening.